The Cappuccino Podcast brought to you in association with Tactical Solutions. For all your tactical solutions, check them out at www.tactical.co.nz. It's that time again, so grab yourself a cup of joe and get ready for the Cappuccino with Constable Brian. Okay, so my guest today on the cappuccino is uh, Josh Darby, firefighter, uh, trauma researcher, keen fisherman. Uh, at the age of 16 years, he joins volunteer firefighters, partly due to the fact that he gets a pager and he can leave school to fight fires. A uh, senior firefighter with over, well, coming up to 20 years of experience, of uh, operational experience. At one stage, he was Mr. March too, but we won't mention that too much. Um, in 2017, 2018, he's awarded the Firefighter Scholarship and it supports, supports his postgraduate study, research examining suicide, psychological injury, maladaptive behavior within, within FENS. He's a senior advisor organizational development in FENS. Uh, as I stated, he's a keen fisherman, and he's now currently leading about a $500,000 project to improve the psychological well-being of firefighters. That all sound about right, Josh? Some of it, yeah. yeah good work. Okay, that's all right. We won't let, it, won't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we do the speed round dedicated to Keanu Reeves because uh, John Wick volunteered speed's the greatest police movie of all time. Right. Okay, yeah. so the best firefighting movie of all time is what? Oh, good. Oh, Ooh, yeah. Yeah, that's a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a tough one. Um, the one with uh, Joaquin Phoenix is pretty good. Ladder 49? Yep, yep. Okay, I'll give you that. Right, uh... If I wasn't a firefighter, I would be. If I wasn't a firefighter, I'd be doing what I'm doing now, mate. Getting into this uh, trauma research, um, working in that kind of psychoeducation space. I'm really enjoying that at the moment. Right. Uh, the best life lesson that you've ever learnt on the job? The best life lesson I've ever learnt on the job. Apart from stay away from fire. Oh, look, If when you start off in the job, you want to be able to cook a good scone, mate. That's a important <laughs> yeah, life well, lesson, yeah. mate, if you, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you want to be embedded properly. <laughs> God you know, bless. you got to figure out how to cook. Exceptional. Uh, the last book you read? Oh, the last book I read. Um, one of the most recent books I read is on trauma. Uh, the Body Keeps a Score by Bessel van der Kolk. Awesome book. Um, definitely recommend to read if you're into that type of thing. Cool. What's one piece of equipment that you always have with you? Oh, like uh, on the a, job? No, either on your job or just sort of basically in your car or anything else. With me, it's a torch. I had a fishing rod literally at my wedding day. Does that count? Yeah, that counts. Yeah. Yeah, that'll work. <laughs> um, the best prank that anybody's ever played on you uh, what during your time uh, since you joined that you can actually mention in a oh, podcast? Um, yeah, yeah, that's a good caveat. Well, yeah. Uh, on my last night, there's a bit of tradition in uh, the fire service that on your last shift, either when you're going off the trucks into a roll or moving stations that you know you're in for a good washing you know it's always a water fight yeah and um the boys on my last shift hid my keys at the top of the towel that we do training on um with the idea being that i'd have to go up and get it if i wanted to leave and then they had some hoses lined up but uh, i woke up early while they well, they're still having a little sleep and snuck up there and got the keys and then washed them. So well played. Yeah, a little reversal there, mate. Good work. Um, while we're just talking about caveats, uh, something to mention with this podcast is there may be um, a few uh, mentions of incidences or experiences that could be triggering. Um, if you or anybody else listening to the podcast finds it troubling, 
And please seek out welfare help uh, in New Zealand. That's 1737 for mental health services. For first responders and emergency personnel, uh, make sure that you see your welfare officers. Um, and the other thing to mention here also is the views, opinions and comments within inside this podcast are not indicative of any of the organisations that either Josh or I work for. It is literally, as this podcast is meant to be, two people having a chat uh, having a brew if I could have found a cafe that was open uh, <laughs> and talking about stuff so FYI okay so Fens is New Zealand's fire and emergency uh, service it has a combination of volunteering career firefighters attending over 80,000 call outs in New Zealand annually there have been tragically 39 firefighters die in the line of duty since 1872 in New Zealand and in 2014 there's a memorandum of understanding between St John's and Fens and you guys start attending some of the, uh, as we'd say in America, the paramedic events. Um, so that's uh, cardiac arrests, um, deaths, that type of stuff. And there's a huge increase in the number of deaths that you witness. Um, firefighters and most first responders are at, uh, more risk of psychological injuries such as PTSD, depression, anxiety, um, obviously suicide. And it's generally down to um, all of those things that we see. I remember talking mm. to an NZDF uh, personnel member has said you guys probably see more carnage than we do um, on a regular basis being right. first responders right. unless obviously you're a special tier operator so Josh Darby define well-being to me in the Josh Darby uh, sort of mantra because whenever I have somebody on they say oh I do well-being I'm always like what's well-being mean to you because it's always a tricky one nobody can actually put their finger yeah on it's it. a word that gets thrown around yeah. a lot doesn't it mate yeah. um, but I, def I like to define it or think about it in a holistic term, you know, yeah. I actually really like the um, Tafari Tapafa model that talks about well-being as as there being like four uh, walls on yep. Tafari on the house, mm -hmm. you know. And so for me, well-being is when those four walls um, are intact and strong, you know. And so the, you've got a, a wall there around your physical health. You've got a wall there around your psychological health. Um, you know, there's a wall around. Um, the house there that is spirituality and one that's about that really important factor of kind of social supports familial supports mm -hmm. um even organizational support so it's not just one of those things for me yeah um, it's it's all of those things being intact that i think defines well-being really well all right now if i had said to you at the age of 16 you just joined the volunteer firefighters because you get to play hooking from school with a pager <laughs> yeah hey you know what josh darby academic researcher what would you have said to that Oh yeah, it was. Um, it, it, I wouldn't have predicted that at that <laughs> stage for sure. Like it was a funny story about that, mate. Like we, because um, we, I, I in Fangaparoa, like yourself, mm -hmm. I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I look, I come from Dargaville originally. Yeah. Oh, actually, further north than that, Kaihu. And um, we moved up to the Fangaparoa Peninsula. And then yeah, the volunteer fire brigades was it right at the top of the hill where the, my school was at the bottom, and they were short of volunteer firefighters, so they. Had this great recruitment strategy where they brought down a couple of uh fire engines started up a big water fight <laughs> uh which was a great trick and then uh subsequent to that one of them came up to me and said mate here's a pager and if you become a volunteer firefighter we'll give you this and whenever it goes off you can leave school you know kind of like you mentioned at the boom. start there so it's like boom um so yeah started at 16 went to university when i finished school at 18 yep. uh dropped out you know c's and d's pretty much yeah and uh yeah joined as a career firefighter so certainly wouldn't have predicted it having dropped out of university in the first instance to join up um what's now fire and emergency yeah so after being a volunteer firefighter 
you obviously decide to become a professional firefighter or a permanent firefighter. Um, what was your first station and what was that like? Uh, my first station was Mount Roskill Station. It's, it's not there anymore. Um, but it was on Mount Albert Road. And uh, it was an older station, but it was um, it was cosy, mate. And I had a, I had a good crew. And uh, just I was just really excited. I remember my first shift and um, we we're on the way to the gym and we got a call, you know, and, and stopped the truck, opened the door, um, got out, chucked on my gear, and I was like, oh, man, this is my job now. Yeah. Like, this is pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, so you start getting an interest in psychology, trauma, and supporting the well-being of first responders, which, to be fair, most first responders kind of do anyway, I guess. Um, but your interest goes a little bit further. What kind of kicked it off? Yeah, well, um, I think I've always been quite a deep thinker, like right, right from when I was at school. Mm -hmm. um, but what really kicked it off for me was my own experience, mate. Um, like we've talked about where um, in my mid-20s, I, for me, it started off as anxiety, mm -hmm. like, you know, in terms of psychological injury. And I used to get, uh, what I started noticing in terms of symptoms was like a really tight chest, uh, almost like I was having a heart attack, you know, yep. I knew what the signs and symptoms yeah, of yep. a heart attack were. Um, and it's an, so in incredible and interesting how powerful the brain is, yep. you know, because those symptoms started manifesting, even though, man, I was fit as a fiddle, yep. you know, playing footy and all of that had tests done, there was nothing wrong with my heart, and yet I'd have this tight chest, I'd feel pain radiating down my shoulder, um, I'd have this thing uh, they sometimes call air hunger, where I just didn't feel like I could get enough oxygen in. Mm -hmm. And it got to the point where I was like, man, this, there's something wrong here, you know? And I eventually um, reached out uh, to a fellow firefighter, because what came with that eventually, it was anxiety first, um, and then depression, mm -hmm. you know, which is, yeah, you know, almost next level again. Yeah, yeah. And um, but I had to get I had to get pretty far along actually before I reached out. Thinking back, like I got to the stage, mate, where I'd been depressed um, for quite some time, and I started to have you know what they took the fancy term they use sometimes is suicidal ideation, mm -hmm. um, which basically means I didn't ever make a, an attempt on my life. I didn't plan to suicide, but I'd be driving along. And I'd see a power pole and I'd have this almost intrusive thought come into my head, like, yeah. hey, you could, you know, you could drive into that. And it actually scared me, yeah. you know, like, um, and, and so it was good to learn that, you know, what occurs to you or your thoughts aren't actually you, you know. And, and I think what had happened there is I'd been depressed for so long or long enough that my brain started to come up with these pretty far out options that actually ended up scaring me. And I almost had to get to that point um, before I reached out to a fellow firefighter. And I think that's part of, like... Uh, our interest here is stigma we've just finished men's health week yeah <laughs> and i think you know as a bloke i was i i didn't want to reach out for help mate i was i was worried about what my peers would think about me mm -hmm. um you know i was worried about being thought of as soft or you know all that stuff mm -hmm. um that contributes to stigma and so something that you know probably could have been dealt with a lot earlier on and been a lot less complex because it hadn't gone on for so long um ended up getting really really bad um, so yeah, that's, that's a big part of what led to me getting involved in this now was my own experience, like getting all the way to that point of having thoughts about taking my own life. Yep. Um, like I said, reached out to a fellow firefighter and I think a real key there for like people listening is that, um, when someone reaches out, like this person wasn't a psychologist, he wasn't a counselor. No. Um, he was just someone that I trust, I trusted, 
Uh, he was someone that held space for me, you know, wasn't there mm-hmm. necessarily to fix it, but just to be like, hey, mate, I'm going to not judge you in this. Um, you can tell me about what's going on. And it's cool. And he'd also just do practical stuff like, you know, if I was at home um, in a bad headspace, I mean, I remember on one stage he drove all the way out from West Auckland to, to just come and see me and say, come on, mate, let's get out of the house. Yeah. You know, let's go down to the park, throw the footy around, let's go to the gym. Um, so, yeah, that was that was awesome. And connected up to a clinical psychologist um and as i got through kind of the worst of it as you can imagine pretty difficult at the start yeah i started to realize um you know as, as police officers firefighters we're quite practical people a lot of the time yeah and we like to figure things out you know if it's how do we extricate a person from a car or something yeah. like that we're problem solvers and i realized that i could actually apply that to what was happening to me like how would i found myself in this place what were the things that had contributed how can i um go about um, um, understanding how I could get better and so I had this I guess real interest and appetite for understanding psychology um, ended up getting involved with peer support as I got better mm-hmm. um, and then ended it up at university so that was kind of the journey journey there is through my own kind of lived experience of of trauma and, and psychological injury why I'm gonna ask you the 64 million dollar question here yeah why are first responders so shitty yeah at seeking help apart from you know you you're afraid that it'll affect, affect your career or you're afraid that you'll get some jibs and jibes from some of the crew about you know like you said being soft and everything else yeah and yet you know we will often say to people hey look if you've got issues or something else give us a call or look let's face it if you've got some mental health issues nine times out of ten lots of people will ring the police or the fire service mm. to help them out so what do you think that we actually can't do it for ourselves i think part of it I think there's a whole lot of things, like you say, that contribute, but certainly one um, that seems kind of self-evident to me is we're seen as first responders, as people that, you know, go into dangerous situations when everyone's not, you know, Mm -hmm. and and with that is potentially this idea that, you know, we're supposed to be invincible and invulnerable and always up for it um, and and never weak and, and never without limitations or vulnerabilities. And we put on this uniform, you know, you, you know, you've got your vest on and um, when I'm going into a fire, I've got breathing apparatus and you know, uh, level, we call it level two bunker code and all this protective equipment. And we do go into these dangerous situations, you know, and I think sometimes um, we get caught up in what we perceive the public or our colleagues think we should be able to handle mm-hmm. uh, versus the reality. And yep. the reality is for all of us. And, you know, I know some of the toughest people out there in the job and outside of it. Man, we all have our vulnerabilities. We all have our limitations. Uh, We all have times in our life where we're overwhelmed, you know, and and we struggle to cope. And but I I think that's true, especially for men. And then um, certainly true for women Mm -hmm. as well, but especially for men. And especially when you have this uh, additional factor of putting on a uniform, you know, where the, the public's looking to you to be strong. Yeah, and like I keep telling people, it's not a Superman costume, it really isn't. It's no, no, no. Yeah. Piece of material. So yeah. you go and become a peer supporter, and initially you think that your issues are kind of isolated, um, and obviously you're getting a much bigger, wider picture that there's some big issues with um, psychological injury running through um, your, what was then Fens, well, what was Fens, I guess. Um, it's a common theme, isn't it? You know, military first responders. I mean, we see th- more things than most and hopefully most people don't get to see those things in their Mm, life mm. why do you think it's only ever been in the last sort of 20 years or so that we've actually started kind of really listening to people i mean i have spoken to some 
um, war veterans who, uh, heaven forbid, some of the stories they tell me, I'm just like, are you serious? Mm. Um, it's a, a mortar range out uh, uh, near where we police, and apparently after um, in World War Two, if somebody was suffering shell shock, they'd go to uh, the hospital for a wee while, and then they'd bring them back down to the mortar range and mm. fire a couple of mortars off, mm. see if they're okay, and then okay, you're you're good to go, off you go, yeah, you're back yeah. on active service. And I mean, obviously we've improved a lot since then, mm. um, but why do you think it's only sort of been in the last twenty or thirty years that we've actually started listening to people? Do you think it's just purely been because of that sort of ironclad, iron front of, oh, we don't show any weakness because we're firefighters or cops or anything else, or do you mm. think it's something different? Mm. I, th- I think, mate, we've had, like, and it can, you can go all the way back to World War One, World War Two. you can go even further back in terms of the history of trauma, yeah. um, and you, you mentioned that term shell shock, you yeah. know, that initially they thought what we'd now call PTSD um, was the consequence of concussion to the brain, you yeah. know, or being under artillery barrage, and... Uh, so that's, that's kind of where they started until they started realising that their soldiers who um, hadn't been impacted by that setting, there was no evidence of kind of uh, physical mechanism of injury to the brain, were still breaking down, you yeah. know, and having these symptoms that would now be, um, we'd now associate with PTSD. And then the, the next thing they went to was, well, you know, if it's not a physical cause, it's it's a character defect, you yeah. know, that these, these men are cowards you yeah. know and and mate there were people shot back then yeah you know as deserters that now um would be looking to support because they've just seen so much stuff and been mm-hmm. so overwhelmed to it they, they, they've literally been broken by it um but back then they tortured people they even shot people that yeah. we'd now understand as having PTSD. um and fortunately um more recently and and also as a consequence of the vietnam war you know, we get this um, we get this diagnosis of, of PTSD. We understand that actually um, it's, it's not necessarily the consequence of a, a physical cause, although there is that, you know, you've done some fighting. There, there yeah. can be, um, you know, impact concussions that can, can lead to psychological effects. Um, it's, it's not a character flaw. It's actually a consequence of the fact that we are human, um, and especially when you're seeing things in one day or in one deployment that most humans would never see in their whole lifetime. Yeah. Like, of course that can get overwhelming. Of yeah. course that can um, undermine the, even even the strongest of people. And I just think more recently we've, we've more fully come to appreciate that, you know, that as humans we're resilient. I mean, this is, this is, the, um, this is the both and thing, right? Yeah. We're both resilient and we show incredible resiliency but we're not we're not invincible so we're resilient and we have vulnerabilities both those things can be true at the same time and, it, and it's certainly true of first responders yeah and obviously with covid hitting in the last two years it's resiliency has become a big buzzword mm. um I, i've got to be honest most first responders are sick of hearing the word yeah it's right like, yeah, yeah we love your resiliency it's like yeah okay whatever shut up Who yeah cares? um uh, so like you say you know it's one of those things that we're always building on what wanted to make you go that one step further though and take the academic research mental to assist first responders because i can imagine that was one hell of an interesting conversation with anybody that knew you or mm. your boss when you mm. went in and said hey actually you know what i think i'm gonna go to uni and study this or did you do it on the sort of the lowdown and just plug away at it and then boom there it was yeah it, it actually came about in part through the peer support stuff yeah. right because as you kind of alluded to earlier 
initially when I experienced psychological injury, it was extremely isolating, yeah. um, or at least my perception was I, I was isolated. I thought I was the only one in yeah. what was then the New Zealand Fire Service, um, or as a bloke going through this. Yeah. Um, Which is a common thing as well, isn't it? It's, it's common, you know, and, yeah. and another thing that's contributed to us talking more freely about this is, you know, we've had some of these trailblazers like the John Kerwins of this world, yeah. the Mike Kings, yeah. you know, who are, who are these blokes that are actually standing up and saying, you know, man, I've, I've, I've gone through some tough times yeah. and it's had a real impact on me and it's kind of given the rest of us permission to be like, hey, that's that's my reality too. Yeah. And that's what happened a, a little bit with what um, the peer support work did for me because mm-hmm. all of a sudden I'm on station and I'm having, you know, some of my mates or, or guys I'm working with on overtime pull me into a room, shut the door and say, hey, mate, you know, and, and kind of said this... Um, and another um, seminar thing I was doing recently, they say like hush tones, mate. Like you know that stuff you're talking about. I yeah, I'm actually struggling myself. Yep. But you know, shut shut door, um, quiet because of that stigma, mate. Yep. Because they're worried, man. What if someone overhears this? Yep. Yeah. And then I and then I get phone calls. You know, in my peer support role, um, with just some of the guys and girls that are are really struggling. Um, and of course they're struggling, like speaking to one of my mates recently went to three suicides in a single night shift mm. you know like yep. could you imagine yeah I, I mean i remember having a rookie cop on my section who went to three sudden deaths yeah and i think it was the second or third day on the job wow. yeah and by the end of the day you could see he was just emotionally full yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. and and so i i mean the good part of that is i realized i wasn't alone the bad yep. part of that was i was like man this this issue seems pretty significant us obviously i'm i'm based in auckland yeah spent um pretty much all of my career in the central district but then as i got more and more involved i got to go around the country a little bit and while the issues sometimes um differed you know sometimes it was um largely trauma related with the, mm-hmm. the calls sometimes it was uh family stuff what was going on at home uh other times it was uh you know stuff happening in the workplace yeah often a combination like for me it was a combination of things rather mm-hmm. than just a, a single um incident but what i knew for sure after that was i wasn't alone in this but not only that it was it was really worrying just the amount of stories coming out yeah um about how widespread this could be so yeah i was like well i, I want to be part of 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 helping you know my mates yeah um we lost uh one of the guys off my recruits course jason still a little bit hard to talk about still, yeah. still cuts pretty um close to the bone you know he took his own life um and and you'd know you know you do your recruits course you get yeah. you get pretty tight yeah and he was a he's an awesome guy man and um he's a bit of the class clown and uh yeah i just just didn't see that coming that really knocked me for six mm. um and then we lost some other um colleagues in auckland to suicide and I, yeah i just i don't know to be honest man i just had enough of it yeah. you know and it, and so I reached out to a couple of the universities because I thought that's where the smart people are. <laughs> <laughs> and um, actually, there was this one program that really resonated for me because I was less interested in, in being a counsellor or a clinical psychologist. Mm-hmm. I talk too much, mate, as you know, for, for the one-on-one work. <laughs> um, but I was interested in the big picture, you know, like understanding all the factors that contributed to it and coming up with a strategy and a plan at that higher level to to respond and uh, i found this violence and trauma program postgraduate program at aut that really resonated and uh 
the reached out to the lead of that program and he said oh well we're not going to do this for you mate like you <laughs> you come and bring that operational experience yep and your cur- curiosity when it comes to psychology and trauma and and let's see where we end up and where we ended up was with that why we 360 report how has it been like walking in those two worlds like i know from my experience in tv land it's an yeah. odd thing sometimes yeah you're on tv you're a police officer with you you're an academic researcher you're a firefighter yeah i mean lots of first responders look at academic researchers and when they start talking about things and everything else they just go oh here we go it's just academic gobbledygook yeah um there'll be some key points here that they might take out yeah i think we've both been in rooms with um psychologists talking about what they do mm. um and i've i've sat there and at the, at the end of their 25 minute presentation i'm sitting there going but you never actually told me how you could help me right yeah yeah um yeah, yeah which i kind of get so is it is it difficult to walk with a foot in either camp now or you do you find yourself sort of it's easier because of what you're doing it's easier to relate that academic world to the sort of on the boots on the ground firefighter exactly that mate like i think that's um what i've really enjoyed is taking some of that more uh, it can be a bit dry at times um the yeah. academic stuff and combining it with my operational experience and like what i did in that in the why we 360 report and it's in the title is i brought uh these metaphors from, yep. the, from the fire service and i applied them to um you know psychology um and i applied them to that report so why we 360 is a nod to this idea um in our organization um and i got this in part when i did my officer training is when you turn up to an incident like there's a building that um brian and i are looking at here if that building was on fire um a good strategy is not just to rock up to that the front door and just send the troops straight in the front door um what what they teach you that can be the temptation i know as a as a firefighter in the back that's what i want to do is just like rip into it here we go Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah um and i was doing my officer's course and and they, they have this um down in rotorua they have this big facility t- there that's set up as a town and they stage all these incidents mm-hmm. and i had one which was like a train versus a car and uh, i got out and did the senior firefighter thing like i said all oh, right there's a there's a person on the train like let's let's get stuck into that and there's someone trapped in the car still an interior rescue there and i walked around to the other side of the train while my crew was already committed and there was a assessor standing there and he said um Josh, what if you'd got around here and there were more casualties or there was some significant hazard to your, to your firefighters? Like you haven't actually done a 360 first, mate, yep. and figured out a strategy. You've just reacted to things as you've seen them. And that really stuck with me. And so um, there's this idea again, back to that building, that when we pull up, um, best practice is actually to literally walk around that building first yeah. to do a 360 um and then to come up with your strategy and then to commit your crew because maybe the fire's um actually at the rear of the building and it'd be a lot better to reposition and attack it from there maybe there's casualties around the corner and that should be your priority yeah we can only see that once we've done the 360. yeah and so what i did is i took concepts like that and i applied them in a psychological sense hey if as an organization if we want to respond to what I called fire, um, funnily enough, a bit cheesy, but fire representing things like PTSD, depression, suicide. Um, if we want to understand that and respond to it better, first we need to do a 360 and understand within our organization, what are the factors that are contributing yeah. um, to this fire? Uh, this, I use that metaphor of smoke. You know, you'd know the old adage, um, where there's smoke, there's fire. fire. Yeah, yeah. So I use smoke as a metaphor for the fancy you know, this is the academic speak, the psycholo- um, psychology speakers, maladaptive behaviors, which is just simply when someone's suffering, when they're hurting, 
they're naturally going to try and find ways to cope with it. Mm-hmm. And so, as a as a bit of a general rule for adaptive versus maladaptive coping, adaptive stuff is the stuff that we do that's difficult, it, it, it's hard to do in the short term, like reaching out to someone. Hopefully that's getting easier in today's society, yeah. but um, you know what I mean. But in the long term, we know that reaching out um, or doing talk therapy, as difficult as it might be initially, um, it has these incredible benefits in the long term. Whereas maladaptive behaviors are stuff that um, is easy or um, makes things easier in the short term, but in the long term makes things harder for us. So that's like turning to the booze, you know, the emotional numbing. We get rid of the problem in the short term, but actually it just exasperates it yeah. in the long term. So yeah, smoke for me became this great metaphor for maladaptive behaviors, you know, where we can see um, drinking issues in the organization, where we can see um, these familial issues at home. These might be indicators, you know, this might be smoke of, of fire, you know, of, of depression, of PTSD, of anxiety. So I, yeah, I, I guess what I did is I took those metaphors, those things that firefighters would actually get, yep. and I combined it with this kind of understanding of psychology and trauma, and uh, hopefully bridge those two worlds, you know? All right, so here we go. Let's put let's put you on the sort of pole, to, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. This is our, uh, one of your direct quotes. I've always tended towards understanding psychological trauma from a meta and holistic standpoint. It's yeah. true individuals need to take personal responsibility uh, for their well-being and mm. it's also true that organizations and governments have a responsibility for well-being of their people and mm. citizens right mm. we know from recent research that re- repeated exposure to traumatic traumatic events is contributing uh, to the rates of first responder psychological injury that are more than double the rates of the general populations right mm. Mm. so i'm going to play devil's advocate because i get yeah, yeah. that sometimes and i know you probably do as well yeah isn't that what you folks get paid for isn't that what you signed up for mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I've certainly heard that. Yeah. Um, the reality is, <laughs> you never know until you know, yeah. you know, you, you um, might have some idea of what you're signing up for, but until you're that firefighter um, or a police officer that's turned up to a motor vehicle accident, you know, with children inside that aren't breathing, you don't actually know. No. You, you'll never know what that uh, feels like, what that looks like, until you've tangibly experienced it, yeah. you know, and so... Um, yeah, what I'd say to that is, yeah, we sign up to help our communities, but that doesn't mean that we sign up for um, for just being overwhelmed without the support required to, to process those events. Like, uh, another way to think about it is, if I want to serve my community, I want to be able to do that sustainably. Mm-hmm. And because I am human, and because I have limitations, and because I have vulnerabilities, and because yeah. I can be overwhelmed at times, you know, despite my resilience and toughness, um, if I want to do this in the long term and serve my community for as long as possible, then I need support to do that. Yep. I need help to process the stuff that I see and I'm exposed to, so it does it isn't so overwhelming, and I can keep doing it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just a fair expectation. If we're going to ask um, our firefighters, our police officers, our doctors, our nurses, um, our emergency ambulance services to to serve society, and and they do it willingly. We also have to accept that that comes at a cost to them personally yep. and we should seek to support them in whatever way we can to do that yep. and it's not very supportive to say hey you know what you signed up for you yeah. suck it up like yeah. not that helpful exactly right yeah. yeah um so what do you do these days to look after your own well-being mm. to start off with i mean you've got all this knowledge you've got all this academic knowledge you've done the research you're leading this big uh, project and we'll talk about that soon yeah but what do you what do you do personally to look after yourself for me i do 
jiu-jitsu I'll exercise um, I love listening to music yeah um, so I'll listen to loud music yeah and that type of stuff yeah that's how I kind of cope with it yeah what about yourself how do you cope with it well I think the first thing I'd say is um, there's this uh, there's this idea of the difference between what they call orthodoxy and orthopraxy and orthodoxy means um, right knowing yeah. you know knowing all the right stuff mm -hmm. and orthopraxy means um, right practice you yeah know, doing the right stuff and so <laughs> what I'd want to caveat what I'm about to say is like, yeah, I know a lot of this stuff and I still struggle to do yep. it at times, you know, like I know I should get up and go for a run or I know I should, um, you know, pick the salad rather than the pizza. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and, but I don't always get that right. But certainly like the basic stuff in, in terms of the individual stuff, like doing my best to eat well. Um, I generally eat pretty well, mm -hmm. but my issue can be portion control, mate. Like, and yeah. I think um, <laughs> that comes in part from the fire service. Like, we're used to big meals, you know, like, you're in the ship, mate. If you cook a meal on station, and it's, um, one, it's got to be tasty, but there's got to be a lot of it. Yeah. And so you learn pretty quickly to cook big meals, because you don't want hungry firefighters after you've, it's Correct. been your turn to cook. Yep. Um, and I've, there's also that old thing of, you know, when you've got food or kai in front of you. Yeah. You eat it because you don't know whether or not you're going to an eight-hour eight call-out yeah, yeah. within inside the next 30 seconds. So, yeah, I, I get what you're trying yeah, to say. Yeah, I, I honestly think there's like an evolutionary ex aspect to that mm -hmm. or a biological aspect to that when it's like, yeah, there could be danger coming. Yeah. So, gonna, well, that's my excuse anyway. Yeah, feast but, up but, on the cards. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> for yeah, being a big... Yeah, um, yeah. But exercise, like play um, quite a bit of sport. Yeah. And then a big thing for me, man, is getting out on the water, like pretty blessed up on the mm -hmm. peninsula. Yeah, yeah. Like awesome fishery. So there's something about, for me, getting out on the water with some mates, like there's something about being connected to nature in that setting. Like I was over at Little Barrier last week and um, I don't do this enough, but it was a bit of a lull in the fishing and I just took a moment to like kind of look at these real sheer cliffs there. Mm -hmm. And mate, it was just beautiful. Like, mm -hmm. and I just took a moment. I was like, man, this is awesome to be out here. Um, and also, like you said, you're, you're getting some kai, you're providing for your family. Like mm -hmm. that, that's a good mm -hmm. feeling as well. So yeah, a few things there for me. What advice would you give to somebody who's either a rookie first responder mm -hmm. or thinking about becoming a first responder? Like, I've got a couple of books that I always say to people, hey, you, maybe you might want to read this or maybe you might want to start actually learning how to talk to people about issues you've got, that type of stuff. What advice would you give to people who are maybe thinking about it as a career um, so they don't read, like, your report or something similar and go oh hang on i don't know if i want to join this job there's yeah, yeah, a lot, yeah. lots of stuff going on here yeah yeah and, that, and that's a really good point to raise right because i think you can hypersensitize people to risk yeah you know and that's something as a researcher and someone who kind of speaks in the space that mm -hmm. um i've got to navigate because some people need to hear the message that um because it's reality that you're not invincible you're no. not invulnerable yeah. you know and while um, things might be sweet at the moment. You, you don't know what your life's going to look like in a year's time. Exactly. You know, if the things that can contribute to psychological distress and injury are, you know, family issues, financial issues, um, stuff from your childhood that you haven't processed, mm -hmm. who knows what life's going to look like yep. for you. And, and so actually just be open to the idea that you're not invincible. But other people need to hear, um, maybe because they're too orientated to that, that, you know what? You know, you're here um, at this stage on your life because you do have resilience yep. and you do already have tools and they just need encouragement to know that actually the majority of the stuff you're going to go to, um, the majority of the time, you're going to be sweet, yep. you know, because you're going to talk about it. You, you've got your ex exercise routine. So I think for me, it's getting that balance between you don't want to hypersensitize people to the risk, um, but you also um, want people to know that they are resilient. 
and and most of the time for most of the calls there'll be sweet airs yeah. especially if they've got good supports in place and the way i explain that is um you know we got that big issue of sun exposure in new zealand and melanoma yeah and i i, I say it's kind of like that you know you could go your whole life in the sun right exposed to this risk factor and never develop melanoma um but we know that it's a risk and so actually if we want to reduce our chances of melanoma then we should put on a hat you know we should put on some sunscreen yeah same thing with the psychological injury stuff you could go to a lot of calls um through your career and never develop PTSD. In mm -hmm. fact, it's a very, um, well, relatively small percentage of first responders that go on to experience PTSD. However, it is a risk factor. Yep. And if we want to reduce that risk, uh, we should be thinking about the different ways we can do that. Mm. And it's like anything, I guess, um, crime, fire, um, all those types of stuff. A little bit, bit of prevention first at the beginning yep. is going to stop an awful lot of reactive uh, long-term stuff at the at the very sort of end of it I guess in 2017 you're awarded and you re received the Fenn scholarship and produced uh, the 360 report and we've spoken a little bit about that it's yep. an investigation of psychological distress injury and suicide with inside Fenn's yeah and after that uh, in close to 100 pages of research you recommend some 20 key points mm. um, what was the reaction like first of all one from your truck mates in the mm. truck mm. two from the organization and then three from the outside groups because I know that a lot of outside groups are like, wow, you know, even now, like when I, people have said to me, oh, who have you got on your podcast? I'm like, oh, Josh Dab, oh, he's the firefighter who does like the mental health stuff. And I'm mm. like, yeah, so was it, um, was it a different, because I'm guessing you would have got three t different types of reaction or did mm. everybody sort of go, okay, cool, we've got some serious work to do here? Or? Mm, mm. Yeah, and it, it was, you know, there was a range of um, reactions and um, mostly really supportive. Certainly at an operational level, you know, it was really um, encouraging to have heaps of firefighters reach out and yep. just say, hey, I've read your report, which is no easy feat in itself because it was done. <laughs> I mean, for, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> 100 pages, is, yeah. it can be a bit of a slog. But, yeah. um, you know, I guess for them, I just named something that they, they knew was true and but it, someone had put words to it. Mm -hmm um so yeah that that's been and still is you know to get people walk up to you and say hey mate like thanks thanks for yeah. that thanks for that accurately represents yeah. what i've experienced you know hopefully it's giving permission for people um to, to talk about that stuff from an organizational perspective um it was mixed to be honest mate i think what's contributing to uh, like I, what i talked about or have talked about in terms of the organizational response because i reviewed our response to this risk factor you know i established that hey um these psychological injuries you know two to eight times mm -hmm. the rates of the general population mm -hmm. if if and they do this you know through um, research and studies that look at these psychological strain factors and if they did this and we came out with rates that were similar to the general population well that would indicate that actually life's tough in general yeah um and so th that's that's part of life yeah but what we see is we see considerably higher rates in the general population that shows us that there's something about the job and what we're exposed to which is contributing to these higher rates right um so then the next question is uh well what are the things that contribute to that so we know the exposure to trauma is a big factor there was a study done in on australian firefighters where they looked at exposure to fatalities mm -hmm. and then risk of pdsd depression and heavy drinking and what they found was that a firefighter who'd been exposed to 20 or more fatal incidents compared to a firefighter that was exposed to five or less, that greater exposed firefighter 
had over four times the risk of PTSD um, and twice the risk of depression and heavy drinking compared to that lower exposed firefighter. So that's absolutely a factor. Um, Not a lot you can do about that factor. No. Because it's part of the job. You're going to be exposed to really tough um, calls and incidents. Mm -hmm. Another factor was the personal stuff we've talked about, the family issues, the financial strain, um, something like COVID happening in society, um, adverse childhood experiences that, that haven't been turned towards and processed. Um, but there's a lim- there's limitations to how an organisation can help there. Yep. Um, certainly EAP services, access to clinical psychologists. Um, but one of the biggest factors that contributes to the psych- outcome of psychological injury is actually organisational and occupational factors. Yeah. So that's the stuff like... Um, it's everything from uh, not feeling valued by your leadership and by the organisation, your perception that you're not valued, yeah. um, your perception that perhaps your well-being isn't prioritised, or, or business stuff is, is yep. put ahead of people stuff. Yeah, everybody's um, favourite. This this is the one that most first responders just go. At, yeah, is yeah. The section or the crew is working really, really well. We've got it so tight knit. Hey bad news for you josh we're going to put you on a different crew because we're down a couple of experienced firefighters there and it's like yeah, you know, yeah. why am i being pun- yeah okay mm, yeah. yeah 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 i hear you it's um yeah it's a tricky one well it's a, it's a big factor i mean they did and this isn't just my opinion you know again yeah. I, I try to base um what i'm saying in the research is yeah. you know they recently did this um research that found even after controlling for exposure to trauma that these organisational factors were one of the biggest, if not the biggest, yeah. contributor to psychological injury. So we kind of talk about this idea that well-being um, is everyone's responsibility. So yes, like yes, we've got a personal responsibility to pick the salad over the pizza yeah. and to go for that run and to and to reach out. Um, and I, I like to say, you know, you're a hundred percent responsible for your fifty percent, and yeah. that is your fifty yeah. percent. But actually, organisations and government they also have a responsibility to their 50%. Mm-hmm. And that is providing a workplace uh, where people feel truly supported, where they feel valued, uh, where they feel like um, organizational values are actually enacted tangibly <laughs> yeah. by the leadership. Like, mate, you, you talk to any first responder, like that's what, they, that's what they want. They want their organizations when they say that people are the most important thing, they don't want that just in words, they want that to be acted out, yeah. you know? And that, is so important to grasp for organizations because it's such a protective factor mm. given this trauma exposure mm. you know that if people feel valued if they feel supported that's going to be a barrier to psychological distress and psychological injury if they don't feel those things it's going to be another load on factor yeah. you know it's going to make people more vulnerable mm-hmm. um, so it's just yeah i can't uh, highlight enough the importance not only of the individual factors but also the organizational factors mm. So then you and some colleagues, after you've done your report, apply for funding from November. Mm-hmm. And the Whānau Nātanga program is one of 14, one of 14 selected from seven different countries. Funding comes about because the scoping review by Movember found that while there's numerous vet, veteran and first responder suicide and ill health programs, many are being implemented without any proper evaluation. Mm. Um, there's a lack of uh, available evidence into their effectiveness. What do you think that is? I mean, because, look, let's be honest, we all know um, there's oh, thousands of organisations doing stuff for, for veterans and first responders' mental health. Um, mm, mm. And I don't know whether it's 
and I mean I mean this in the most loving way to all those organisations. Mm. I don't know whether it's because it's just sort of kind of tokenism, you know, look after yourself, to do the best you can type mm. stuff. It's all sort of feel good stuff, or some of it is actually really in depth stuff. But why is there just this complete lack of research about the the end result, the end product? Mm, mm. Yeah, it's a good question, and yeah, I, I think what brought around that funding from November, you know. Uh, who, for listeners that don't know, I think most people would know about Movember, but uh, men's health charity, yep. traditionally um, thought about in terms of um, prevention and research around um, and treatment of testicular and prostate cancer, Yep. but also uh, the mental health um, and well-being, or mental ill health as it's experienced by, by men. Yep. Um, and more recently, they've had a real uh, focus on veterans and first responders, mm-hmm. which, is, which is awesome, and yep. they've been incredibly supportive of me. And so, uh, yeah, they, they funded this international scoping review, this, this research to look at um, mental ill health and suicide prevention programs around the world. And I think the idea was that identify evidence-based programs yeah. and then fund to scale them nationally and internationally so everyone has access to the things that work. But what, um, and it was Don, Dr. Don McCreary um, that did this research, what they found was that actually there are lots of programs out there, as you alluded yeah. to, but almost, um, well, there's no publicly available evidence. So either they're not being evaluated or that if they are being evaluated, it's not being published, which yep. would be a little bit um, strange, I guess. Yeah. And so I think what's happening is um, there's a lot of good intentions out there. You know, I, I still am yet to meet a manager that wakes up in the morning and thinks, you know, how can I screw over my staff? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think it comes out of a place of not knowing, of not being trauma-informed. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just obviously haven't got there as a, as a culture yet. We, we don't understand yet the widespread impact of trauma and, and we haven't fully realised it. And because we haven't done those things, we're not responding how we could respond if, if we understood you know, just how important it was to understand how, how trauma impacts um, employees, especially in, in, in a first responder context. So, um, yeah, what they found was there's a lot of evidence-informed programmes so evidence-informed, um, connoting that there's evidence for it. Um, it's been shown in other jurisdictions or in other settings, yeah. and it's been adopted, but then it hasn't actually been evaluated. Just because it works over in one population yeah. doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to work in the population you want it to work for. Yeah, which, dare I say, is the way of first responders, isn't it? We see a great program somewhere, working somewhere, and we go, hey, we could make that work for us with a couple of tweaks. And, yes, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So for, to call something evidence-based, you actually, not only would you have to adopt it or design it, you'd then have to evaluate it robustly and scientifically to yeah. see, does this program or this initiative or intervention actually bring about the results that we're saying it brings about or that we hope to bring about? Yeah. Um, so then November, realising this, it kind of pivoted, provided that funding to um, evaluate current programs or to design and evaluate new programs. And that's where um, I was like, uh, well, one of the other findings of that report was that the programs most commonly implemented in the first responder and veteran world um, were based around how individual resilience can be built up. Yep. Again, nothing wrong with doing that. No, no. Yep. But, but yep. what the research shows is actually it's the organisational factors that are the one of the biggest contributors. Yep. And yet there's really change in um, management initiatives built around the organisational factors. So what that means is the burden of responsibility in terms of well-being is being placed on the individual um, much more than the organisation. Yeah. And actually the organisation has a big role to play. Yeah. So um, ours was, I think... I think we're the only one of the 15 programs that is purely looking at 
organizational and culture change as um, as a pathway to um, increasing resilience, um, increasing the experience of phenomena like post-traumatic growth, you know, reducing psychological distress. So yeah, we called it the Whanaungatanga program, which is a Māori word that basically translates to our relationship, the building and maintaining of relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea being that uh, I study something um, called perceived organizational support, which is defined as um, the technical definition is along the lines of it's defined as the degree to which you as an employee, in my case, a firefighter, um, believes that your leadership and your organization cares about your well-being and values your contribution or values your contributions. So um, there's been lots of studies done on this and somewhat unsurprisingly, what they find is because um, we can measure it quantitatively yeah. um, through research, what they find is organizations where there's high levels of POS, Another word for POS is just trust, yeah. you know, morale. Yeah. Uh, so organizations where there's high perceived organizational support, you see lower levels of, uh, they call it withdrawal behavior, so like absenteeism and, and turnover. Um, you see higher levels of productivity. Funnily enough, when people feel supported, they do more and want to do more, yeah. work harder. Um, but most importantly, for me at least, you see improved well-being, right? When people feel supported, when they feel like their organization and their leadership have their back, um, that's a resilience factor. Yeah. That's like a strengthening yeah. uh, in one of those walls that we talked about. So so really important. Um, so yeah, what, what we're doing is we're measuring the levels of perceived organizational support in, in my organization. Um, and we're looking at the relationship between that and psychological strain stuff. Not just the pathology stuff, you know, like the depression and the anxiety, mm-hmm. but also uh, the more positive psychology stuff like resilience and, and post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're looking at one what is the prevalence of this stuff um, but how do organizational factors contribute to that in a good or or bad way you could say Um, once we've benchmarked that what we want to do is design some initiatives um, to obviously improve perceived organizational support Uh, i wish i could tell you exactly what those initiatives are going to look like but uh, we're not going to be telling the the firefighters um, hey this is what you've got to do i think too often that happens is external organizations or people come in and say hey this is what you need to do to fix everything actually what i've learned is like firefighters have got a lot of the answers um and and managers so we're going to do workshops with the firefighters and managers and say hey what are the things that are contributing to you not feeling supported if it's the case um, that the research shows that um and what is the low-hanging fruit here like what would need a change or or what ideas do you have that would make you feel like, hey, your well-being actually is being prioritized. You really do feel valued by the organization. Um, those top ideas will be turned into initiatives or interventions, applied in the field for um, however long, um, probably up to a year. And then we'll run that survey again, because this is a part of the evaluation yeah, yeah, yeah. thing. Has this actually made a difference? Is what we're doing improving perceived organizational support? Um, are we seeing reductions in the levels of distress or the experiences of resilience? Um, and so we, we're going to measure that individually and also, um, we'll look at the organizational change that happens during that. Um, what I am realizing is, um, there's probably a reason why we're one of the only programs to be looking at organizational <laughs> change rather than individual change, man. It's hard to do, you yeah. know, it's hard to shift things in that area. Somebody's yeah. got to do it first, I guess. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. That's yeah. A good so you've spoken a lot about the organization, organizational stresses and the structure and everything else. So yeah. if I'm listening to this podcast and I'm an SFO or a sergeant or a senior paramedic or something else, what's some things that you could recommend that I could do for my crew to sort of 
as my old boss would say, to get some quick runs on the board mm. um, and actually sort of help them feel more valued. Is there anything you can... Because, I mean, look, back in the day we used to do the... And you'll remember this, you know, we used to do the, the station barbecues and then we might have a few drinks after work and everything else. And the culture's changed with um, uh, alcohol on the roads mm. and people's family lives and everybody's got a lot more going on. So there doesn't seem to be that sort of... I don't know if you find this in the fire service, but um, in the police there seems to be uh, uh, moving away from that sort of constant gelling of a section or a crew. Mm, mm. Um, and people, not more splintered, but they tend to be more sort of individuals, which I think is a great thing because mm. you, you get different perspectives and everything else. But what would you recommend if you were in sort of a, a middle management position, sort of two or three things that you could do to make your crew or your section feel a bit more valued by the organisation? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm hoping that... Um, that question won't be left solely up to me. That's yeah, why I'm yeah, going to yeah. get all the firefighters yeah. and managers involved in answering yeah. that. But um, honestly, uh, you know, it might sound a bit cheesy, but that whole idea of be the change that you want to see in the world, you yeah. know, that as a leader, where you start is with yourself. Yeah. You know, like, what are you doing around your own well-being? You know, rather than preaching it to your crews or whatever, yeah. you know, are you living that, that out yourself? Because people are looking up to you, yeah. you know, and that's how they'll learn is by seeing a leadership um, and an organizational culture where it's okay to be vulnerable, um, where well-being is prioritized, like yeah. just living out. Man, most organizations I've found have got great aspirational statements. Yeah, but. but yeah. But there's a but, you know, <laughs> yeah. they, they aren't always acted out. And that's that's understandable. Like I don't act out my kind of aspirations all the time. No. Yeah. But when you don't act them out, man, just own that. Yeah. Which is again is hard. I struggle with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like when I when I screw things up, yep. um, which I often do, um, you know, it's important that I kind of own that. Mm -hmm. And so one big thing that I think goes a long way with um, the front line is when there are organizational mistakes or leadership mistakes, which there often are, mm -hmm. and which is understandable because yep. we all make mistakes. And we're human. Yep. And we're so, human. Yep. What, what, what your people want is they want you just to say, um, at least this is what I believe, that when you say, hey, we got that wrong yep. and we're sorry, yep. and this is what we've learned um, about what led to that, and this is what we're going to do to make it better, mm -hmm. but forget our words, you're going to see this in our actions. Yep. And I think if that was like um, the common leadership and organizational experience, I think people would be a lot more trusting, you know, and I think that for knowing a tongue of peace would be built, you know, that, that yep. trust and that relationship would be stronger. And ultimately, this comes back to how protective that is to people's well-being. Um, so yeah, there's a there's a lot in that. Um, our, like practical stuff. I'll, I'll give you two different stories about how this can play out differently. And um, I was talking to you recently about um, a peer support interaction. And I do this not just with our organisation, with a number of organisations. So I won't disclose which organisation, but um, a first responder was turned out to a suicide, realised that it was a family member involved, mm -hmm. uh, went to their management for support, their manager for support, um, because obviously didn't want to turn out to that incident. Yeah, exactly, and was yep. told, hey, too busy. Yeah, You know, you're going to have to go. Mm. Man, what does yeah, that yeah, do in terms yeah, of support? Yeah. Now to juxtapose that with another experience, um, uh, there was a crew that was exposed to this potentially traumatic event involving an infant that manager heard it over the radio straight away got in their car went to the station um post incident just said hey i'm, I'm here for you what do you what do you guys need you know mm -hmm. do you need to shift off um 
can we get a clinical psychologist out here? So just two different ways that uh, a, a manager has enacted leadership. Um, well, one wasn't leadership, you know? Yeah. And just the impact and the different, you know, in one conversation I'm having with this person telling me, like, just the level of distress that's led to versus talking to this crew where they did have the manager come out um, and they still speak highly of this person because of, of what they do. Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, oh, I definitely. Those, I used yeah, to yeah. have a boss who, um, and again, you know, I've been in the police 26 years, uh, so I've heard managers say, oh, hey, look, we're short-staffed today on section, mm. um, and you can see the pressure going on the guys and girls on section straight away. Mm. Um, so you're gonna, you guys are going to have to, yeah, you're up against it today. Good luck. Mm. And then I've seen managers that have come in and said, hey, you guys are short-staffed on section today, um, but... I'm willing to jump in a car with somebody and they're like, mm. well, you can't do that. You're like the station officer. It's like, yeah, I can, I'm a police officer. Yes, yeah. I'm jumping in. And, yeah, yeah. you know, you do that type of thing. And like you say, people are still talking about it years later. Oh, he often jumps in a car or often does this or she does that and blah, blah, blah. And it's such a great thing because like you just said before, mm. those actions speak louder than those words. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway. And, and I think something important to touch on there as well, you know, to be fair to some of the managers is um, they also need to be supported by a mandate from the organization to mm. do that. And I and I speak to some and they said, you know, like how their leadership is often measured, is it in terms of that tangible no, stuff? It's no. in terms of the business outputs, yep. you know? Yeah. And that drives a lot of what they spend their day doing. Yep. Um, and so I think it's important, again, not to just put this on individuals, but to look at an organization and say, hey, do we have policy, procedure, and practice that supports not only uh, you know, our frontline staff, but our middle managers and supporting the frontline staff. Yeah. Are we giving them that mandate? Are we measuring their leadership, not just in terms of this business stuff? And it's not that business stuff isn't important at no, all. No, But, you know, yeah. if you're saying that people are the most important thing, then that needs to be the very clear mandate to your leadership and your management, you know, so they know that, hey, I can prioritise my day around this people stuff rather yeah. than just the business stuff. Now, has Whanau Nātanga, how's the progress going on it? And... Are you and your colleagues, you guys must be, or guys and girls, must be feeling the pressure to deliver? Because, I mean, that's a lot of money uh, yeah, yeah, from yeah. November. Yeah, and yeah. it's also a lot of responsibility for a lot of your brothers and sisters in the Red family as well. Mm, so, mm. like you say, you're not going to have the, the answers. It's not going to open up the sort of, um, the, the, the key to the city. But it's, it's definitely going to provide some evidence that where there hasn't been evidence. So is there a lot of, do you, do you actually, are you feeling a lot of pressure? On it, or you just try to I do, if, day if, by day. If fluxes, man. Like <laughs> when I when I when I hit barriers and um, when I'm when I'm not sure about how to proceed, then yeah, I feel it. And then yeah. I so I have these moments where I just feel like, man, how are we going to get this done? Yeah. You know, and I go like, okay, I get it. I get it. Why so many people look at the individual rather than the more meta kind of yeah. organizational or societal level stuff? It's it's hard change. And I'm realistic. You know, I know we're not going to change the world um, overnight with this program. No. But then I also um, have these moments where, you know, I speak to the crews or I speak to the people involved in the project and they just believe in it, you know. And, and I think the, the thing that takes some of the pressure off it at least is I realise that the answer to this issue isn't up to me. No. Or, or yeah. certainly not all up to me. And um, <clears throat> I've designed it with assistance in a way that it's not all up to me. That actually I want to draw on the insights of a collective, a body of people rather mm -hmm. than just hey, what's Josh's ideas on how we can fix this? So, yeah, yeah um, certainly, man, times it's tough. Organisational change is hard. Culture change is hard. Um, I, I think we've got a long way to go. Um, and it's generational as well. You know, it's like you said, it's not up to you. It's not up to me. Uh, it may not happen for 
well, I'm hoping it happens quicker than it does later, yes. but yeah. it may take one or two generations of firefighters or cops for sure for it all to, to click in. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. And the, and I mean, the good news is that um, things are changing. Like, uh, just, just in the last couple of weeks, um, there's been quite a few articles coming out of... Um, and I ha- I've seen it for the police as well and, mm-hmm. and uh, St. John and Wellington Free, of these individual first responders coming out and just being open about their struggles. Mm. And I don't know about you, but for me, even 10 years ago, we just, as crews, we wouldn't talk about this stuff. Yep. Uh, well, at least not often around the smoko table. Yeah. Whereas now you're getting these um, you know, 40-year veterans coming out and saying, hey, I, I actually struggled with that. So that's cool to see, yeah, you know, yeah, that yeah. things yep. are shifting. Yep. And you just got to... You gotta, um, you gotta look at where the wins are as well as where the challenges are. You know, not wrong. Now, if I made you the deity, of, deity of worldwide of all first responders, and said you've got five choices, where that you can make for things to get a lot better for first responders overnight, which is like a genie in a bottle, five wishes. Oh, jeez, five. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can have three if you want. Yeah. What are the, what are the things that you'd go right? You know what? This changes tomorrow that changes tomorrow mm. and that changes tomorrow obviously you've spoken about organizational stresses so i'm guessing that's going to be one of them yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um what what are some of the other things that you'd, you'd go i want to change that overnight just for josh darby not for the program or anything else but things that you've done in your research and you've looked at and you've yeah. gone you know what that needs to change yeah 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 well i'd break it up into the individual and the organizational right so yeah. on an individual level and there's crossover there right i yeah. uh, i'd say um you know there's this there's this term in counselling or this idea in counselling that whatever trauma and pain um, that that you experience, that you don't acknowledge and process mm-hmm. or you, um, you don't transform. So the saying is, whatever pain and trauma you don't um, transform, you eventually transmit, right? And, and, and what that's speaking to is the stuff that's um, tough and difficult that impacts me, that injures me, that I don't actually turn towards and tend to, mm-hmm. it's going to eventually transmit yeah. and it might take a month or a year or 10 years but it's going to come out yeah. um or it's going to get internalized and so internalization will, um, can manifest in anxiety and depression and the suicidal thinking um and it can also be projected outwardly outwardly you know in terms of um anger towards others you know outbursts you yeah. know and you go oh man that person's a bit of an asshole but actually and this is one of the cool things about one of the philosophies or frameworks that I look at, trauma-informed care. It says, let's, let's not ask what's wrong with people. Let's ask what's happened to them. Yep. You know, so that person that you think is a bit of an asshole, like, what if we got a bit more curious about their behavior and realized that it's actually a, a, a manifestation, a symptom of this unprocessed trauma or cool yep. that's happened to them? You know, so I think um, that's got two things in there. There's an individual responsibility to to self-awareness yeah you know, oh, yeah definitely yeah. you know you, we we're talking about philosophy early this idea of mindfulness yeah. you know being aware um being able to watch ourselves and go man like my reaction there was out of proportion to what happened is there anything else going on yeah oh, it took me 15 years before i discovered the importance of hyper vigilance in my job right right and what happens when you have hyper vigilance in your workplace yes and yes. then of course you know you get home you've had the adrenal drop and everything yes. else above it. I was like, okay, cool, this is how it works. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so you're right, that self-awareness definitely plays a huge part. So yeah, you've yeah, got, yeah. To, got to have a look at it, yeah, so. And, and you've, that's the one area where you've got a lot of agency. Yeah. You know, it's like, I, I'm yeah. not reliant on the organization yeah. for that. It can be supported, but you can do that. So there's an individual thing. Um, at an organizational level, we've kind of talked about it all already. It's it's about not putting, um, 
and and it's and it's it's so important for organizations to understand this right is like um the stuff that um the the outcome stuff happens when people feel valued mm -hmm. right so if you want the outcome stuff and this is i'm not just talking about first responders here i'm talking about any organization yep. you know productivity the business stuff um, but also the well-being stuff that's a consequence at least in part of people feeling valued uh feeling like their well-being's put first feeling like they're cared about so um what i'd want to change is organizations to have a higher level of literacy around trauma yep. around how valuing their people um has a just a massive benefits not just for the organizational business but for the individual um so my my big goal what i'd love to see um in first responder organizations and also for new zealand there's a more trauma-informed organization and society mm -hmm. um and trauma-informed care they talk about you know when you're at that place i've got four hours they say you're at that place of being trauma-informed where um, everyone realizes the widespread impact of trauma uh, because there's this realization of the widespread impact of trauma um, people can um, well that they, they realize what the signs and symptoms of trauma are that's an indicator mm -hmm. so they see that person acting out and they don't go straight to judgment they bring some curiosity to that and yeah. go shit what might be going on in this person's life um, they can respond you know so there's some there's some literacy there around knowing what to do around trauma and around psychological distress and this is for everyone by the way from the receptionist to the ceo yeah, yeah. this yeah. isn't just for the um you know the well-being officers god yeah. bless them that they're great and it's good to have dedicated resource but, but this is for all staff yeah let's, you know? and let's be honest when you decide that you are going to ask somebody for help yeah sometimes you actually don't get to choose if you know what i mean yeah 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 yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So. and the, and then the last piece of that is you know when everyone realizes um when everyone so when everyone realizes the widespread impact of trauma when people can recognize the signs and symptoms of trauma and can respond what you get is the fourth hour which is this active cultural resisting of re-traumatization mm -hmm. you know um you talked about the the mou um where what was then the new zealand fire service now fire and emergency um they signed up this agreement with st john and wellington free that said hey we're gonna now as a matter of um procedure send a fire engine to all purple calls so respiratory and cardiac arrests so mm -hmm. shooting stabbings uh drownings um suicides um there were some areas that were already doing a bit of that work but then it became w widespread um at the start of 2014 right and there were really good reasons to do that you know there was um as a consequence of that out of hospital out of, out of hospital cardiac arrest rates survival rates for that yeah improved yeah you know because firefighters were often getting their first mm -hmm. um even when they didn't get their first they were supporting our colleagues at st john and wellington free mm -hmm. uh w they work really well as a as a team you know to to provide that um uh that life support and they were getting better results so definitely definitely a um, foundation for for taking that action yep. um also you know there's not as many fires so Correct. it certainly um gave us another way to to serve our communities but we didn't have a trauma-informed organization no. because if we did we would have gone right benefit to the community tick for sure yep. benefit to the organization for sure okay but we're trauma-informed what are the risks to our staff here psychologically speaking mm -hmm. now i i never said that we shouldn't do that because um like that we shouldn't be responding to medical calls because i think firefighters want to help mm. but what i did say in that report is if we're gonna um sign our people up to this type of stuff we need to do a 360 yep. we need to understand what the risks are 
and we need to put the appropriate control measures in place before we do that. And that's not what happened. Overnight, a flick was switched without consultation, without a 360 of what the risks would be, mm-hmm. and without the appropriate controls in place. And now as a consequence of that, it's likely that it's led to um, higher rates of distress, and it certainly had an impact on whanaungatanga, on mm-hmm. trust and on relationship between mm-hmm. the firefighters and, and the organisation. So... Um, that's the, I've talked about the individual piece of the yeah. self-awareness stuff. The organisational piece is, hey, let's let's work, and it's going to take time. Like I've, it's taken me time to figure out trauma. I'm still figuring it out. Yeah, yeah, I'll spend yeah. the rest of my life figuring it out. Yeah. But we need to be more actively engaged, I think, um, yeah. as organisations, as a society, certainly governments, in in understanding trauma, understanding how it impacts our people, and acting not just with words but with actions. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. there is an awful lot of who we in. Not much do we sometimes. That's, that's certainly the perception, man, yeah. Yeah. Now, are you worried that after you finish all of this, that you're going to spend a huge amount of your time presenting and facilitating to external agencies? Because, look, let's be honest, mm. external agencies look at first responders and veterans and go, well, that leadership model works here and that does this and we could make this work for us and everything else. So are you, are you worried that you may actually spend an awful lot of your time afterwards? I know that you do a bit of presenting now. You and I have done some stuff at conferences, you'll spend an awful lot of time presenting to external agencies and saying, hey, this is what I've recommended or anything else, or do you treat that as a bonus? Uh, because the more people that hear this message, let's be honest, the better I think every one of us is. No, man, I, I definitely see it as a privilege. Like yeah. Every time, like I appreciate you reaching out to me and being like, oh. man, do you want to come and chat about this? Um, I, I did a seminar for, um, well, sat in on a panel with the New Zealand Defence Force as part of their um, mm-hmm. Men's Health Awareness Week. Um, uh, Stephen Kearney, I think, yep. Yep. came across some awesome clinical psychologist for the Defence Force. It's awesome. It's a privilege to come in and um, speak to this stuff. I uh, I enjoy it. It's not always easy, right? Because it's still, despite all the work that I've done, I still feel that little bit of stigma there. Yeah. You know, man, yep. should I just open up on um, this podcast about my struggles with, yep. with mental health? So I've still got a ways to go in terms yep. of overcoming that. But yeah, man, I um, yeah, I don't worry about that. Um, I, I look forward to the opportunities that come to, to speak to this issue more. I hope more people come forward because mm. the more people that do, um, the better things are going to get. It can't be left up to people such as yourself yep. and, and Steve. And um, man, there's so many. The cool thing about doing that stuff, like that conference we went to, mm-hmm. was just to see how many people are working within within organisations mm-hmm. to improve things. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know um, the welfare officers, um, the safety, health, and well-being. Uh, people, the psychologists um, and counsellors and psychotherapists, like, man, bless those people, away. Eh? Like, I talk about how I just couldn't do their job. Yep. You know, like, so hard to turn up, have five or six clients throughout the day and hold space for them and hear all the shit that they're going through. Um, man, like, I've got so much respect for those people and so much respect for all those individuals working within organisations to, to just um, create change that... I'll shout out to this one guy, Chris Kennett. I don't know if you've come across this yet, but he um, put together this book, um, which is a children's book. And it's this great idea of having a children's book that raises this concept of, um, you know, mum and dad being a first responder and how they leave and also how that might impact them. And it was used as a tool to facilitate conversations between families, you know, around the work that mum and dad um, might do as a first responder like what a great initiative yeah, yeah, yeah exactly and that's yeah. what i want to do is like 
um, tap into what's already there with our people. Like, yeah. Because, man, there's so many talented people doing awesome stuff. Like, uh, another, there's a, um, uh, a female firefighter down in the Hawke's Bay that started this 100-kilometer relay race to raise awareness of um, first responder suicide and mental ill health and to raise funds for families bereaved by suicide and came up with this great slogan, you know, it takes a team, you don't go through it alone. Yep. So you literally, as a team, we've done it with like 10 or 14 of us, you do this relay where you each run a bit and then support each other. Man, awesome. Like, yep. What a great idea. Yeah, and there'd yeah. be teams from all around the country. Yep. So it's like, let's tap into that more. Like, yeah. man, and... And what I'd say to organization is that, that, that skill, that knowledge, that insight, it, it's already there. It's with your people. Um, just tap into that. Yeah, you're not wrong. I mean, like, I did uh, 22 push-ups for 20 years. Yeah, straight. Mate. Uh, yeah. Nice. Uh, I was luckily, because my district commander, Superintendent Nola Hassan, yes. she got all the senior management team and went, Brian's given me the challenge. Yes. But you guys are all part of our senior management, so yes. you're, you're in on this. Yes. I know some of them had to train for a couple of weeks, but they got there, and that was great because it was like, yeah, this is what you should be showing the troops, you know. Where, Man, yeah. And, and kudos to those managers and those leaders that are doing that. We had the same thing in our organization. We had one of um, uh, one of the area commanders, assistant area commanders, come around and just have a conversation with all the crews around PTSD and, and do a press yeah. up challenge with them. Yeah. Yeah, it goes a long way, man. Yeah, like not, people appreciate that. Yeah, the not, crews appreciate that. Not stuff. wrong, especially if you can still bang them out as well. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the last question—it's always the same question we always ask at the end of the Cappuccino podcast—is this: the day of reckoning has come for. Uh, I'm going to say Doctor Josh Darby because I reckon that's where you're going. Oh, I don't know yeah, about that, mate. Right. Anyway, um, so and but strangely enough, you are at your funeral service, but you can hear what people are saying about Josh Darby. What would you want people to say about Josh Darby? on your final day i'll change it up a bit mate and and let's say i'm on my deathbed what i'd love to be able to say on my deathbed is i've done what is mine to do yep now you must do what is yours to do Boom. you know i want to have i want to get to the end of my life and be able to um and be able to say that to go like man i, I knew that there was this calling on my life or there was something that i needed to do with my life and i did it yep um, I've got a long way to go to, to get to that place, but that's what I'd love to be able to do. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Uh, always great to chat, Josh. Um, your passion always comes true. We need more people in the world like you, but that's just plain and simple. Uh, if you are listening and you are a first responder or you are having some mental health issues of your own, even if you're just a general member of the public, not that there's anything wrong with that, please make sure that you reach out and talk to somebody. Seek some medical advice um, or just talk to a friend and get things started because as you've noted from all of this podcast there's heaps of stuff you can do as an individual but you need to do it all right um and we'll catch you next time on, on the Copchina podcast thanks for listening but please do constable brian and i a favor and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on the next Copchino podcast real people real stories